Hey there, thanks for tuning in to St. John's Asheville Sermon Podcast. We're a church in Sydney's inner west, following Jesus and helping people find grace, learn hope, and be light. If you'd like to visit us or find out more, go to cciw.church. Hey everyone, we are going to start tonight in Zechariah chapter 7, starting from verse 8. The word of the Lord came to Zechariah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the orphan, the alien, or the poor, and do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. But they refused to listen and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears in order not to hear. They made their hearts adamant in order not to hear the law and the words that the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Therefore great wrath came from the Lord of hosts. Just as when I called, they would not hear, so when they called, I would not hear, says the Lord of hosts. And I scattered them with a whirlwind among the nations, among all the nations, that they had not known. Thus the land they left was desolate, so that no one went to and fro, and a pleasant land was made desolate." And our second reading is uh, from Romans 14, starting at verse 1. And you can find that on page 923. Welcome those who are weak in faith, but not for the purpose of quarreling over opinions. Some believe in eating anything, while the weak eat only vegetables. Those who eat must not despise those who abstain. And those who abstain must not pass judgment on those who eat, for God has welcomed them. Who are you to pass judgment on servants of another? It is before their own Lord that they stand or fall, and they will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make them stand. Some judge one day to be better than another, while others judge all days to be alike. Let all be fully convinced in their own minds. Those who observe the day, observe it in honour of the Lord. Also, those who eat, eat in honour of the Lord, since they give thanks to God. While those who abstain, abstain in honour of the Lord, and give thanks to God. We do not live to ourselves, and we do not die to ourselves. If we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died, And lived again, so that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother or sister? Or why, or you, why do you despise your brother or sister? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then each of us will be accountable to God. This is the word of the Lord. Good evening. Uh, my name's Richard. I'm the site pastor here at St. John's. Uh, if we haven't met before, really great to have you here with us this evening uh, as uh, we continue to work through this um, magnificent, epic uh, letter to the Romans uh, from uh, the Apostle Paul. Uh, we're in the last section of it now. We've done it kind of over four years in four parts, and we're coming toward the end now in this last part of Romans. Uh, and so tonight we get to unpack this passage that Elliot's just read for us from chapter 14. I want to ask you a question as we uh, start out tonight, uh, which is this. Uh, where do you stand 
Uh, I've been asked uh, that question in hundreds of different ways, hundreds of different times. You will have two throughout your life. That kind of question of, what do you think about this thing? What's your position on this or that issue? What do you think is the right thing to do in this situation? Where do you stand? Sometimes the answer to that question is quite consequential. Where you stand on a particular issue might really make a big difference to your life or someone else's life. Sometimes it doesn't really matter that much at all. Uh, I remember being at uni in my early 20s and uh, asking a friend, uh, what do you think about the band Arcade Fire? Uh, their response was, yeah, they're fine, I guess. My response to their response was, you're an idiot. Obviously, they're the greatest thing that's happened to this world for a long time, and I really don't know if we can just, we, we can't really hang out anymore, I'm sorry. That's it. It's done. We're too much. Uh, obviously, 20-year-old me was an idiot and a bit of a jerk, to be honest. Who cares you know, where you stand on a particular band, right? But sometimes the, the question itself and the issue involved can be actually a little bit more consequential, a little bit more tetchy. And even in those circumstances, you can have good responses and bad responses. So I remember uh, as well standing in the lunch line at Bible College and uh, being asked casually, as you do in the lunch line at Bible College, uh, what do you think about women preaching in churches? Uh, my response was, I think it's great. And their response was, without a hint of sarcasm. Wow, I don't know if we can be friends anymore. My response to their response was, stunned silence. I mean, I'm like, really? Really? Where we stand on various issues can all too easily become a barrier to loving relationships, can't it? Where do you stand on climate change? Where do you stand on public versus independent education? Where do you stand on constitutional recognition for Aboriginal Australians? Where do you stand on West Connects? Where do you stand on the colour orange in the St John's version of the CCRW branding? <laughs> Don't answer that question. Where do you stand? Right? That's a question that actually can divide friends, families, local communities, churches, even whole nations. The problem is that when those questions about where you stand on various things become ultimate, then we become unable to cope with the differences that inevitably arise when you live with, you know, other human people. Uh, from the beginning of chapter 12 of the book of Romans, as we've been working through it, Paul's been exploring what it means to live out the reality of the good news that Jesus is the Lord. Here in chapter 14, he applies that gospel message to some specific issues that are threatening the Christian community in Rome. Uh, for these followers of Jesus, you see, a particular where do you stand question has become ultimate for them. Where do you stand on eating meat? Where do you stand on observing holy days? And the underlying question beneath it all is, where do you stand on the nature of what it looks like to be a faithful disciple of Jesus? And depending on the answer to that question, the Roman Christians either despise one another or pass judgment on one another. Paul's response to all of this, this whole situation, is to say, where you stand on these things is of little to no importance. But when you make them as important as the Roman Christians are making them, then what you actually do is get in the way of something that matters a great deal indeed, honouring the Lord Jesus by living lives of love together as his people. To live together in love is vastly more important than getting this or that particular question or issue right. And it's a disaster to let your stance on one of those kinds of issues compromise your relationships with other people. And so as Paul unpacks this for the Romans, it raises a question for us as well. How do you live well with people who we have substantial disagreements with, including our Christian brothers and sisters, even here in this room? 
How can we get along well with people who take different stances to us on issues that matter to us? That's a skill that is sorely lacking in our world, don't you think? To actually be able to get along well with people with whom you disagree. And wouldn't it be a beautiful witness to the world, to the power of the gospel, if we Christians, God's own people, could be a community that lives in love together despite all of our very real differences? Romans 14 is going to tell us how to do that. It's going to tell us three things. It's going to tell us that to live together in love means being able to live in the grey. It's going to tell us that being able to live together in love means uh, being able to live to the Lord as opposed to ourselves. And it's going to tell us that uh, uh, that, uh, living together in love is going to mean being able to live with differences. So we're going to work through each of those uh, three things this evening. Firstly, uh, to live in the grey. Uh, This is the first thing that we learn about living together in love here. Uh, And really, here's the headline for you. Not every issue in Christian life and discipleship is black and white. In fact, quite a lot of what it looks like to live as a Christian is lived out in the grey, in between those things, where it's actually just okay for Christians to come to different uh, answers, uh, different perspectives, different conclusions. So, read in verse uh, 1. Welcome those who are weak in the faith but not for the purpose of quarrelling over opinions. Some believe in eating anything while the weak eat only vegetables. Which reminds me, we're having dinner together after the service next week and there will be veggie options available for the weak in faith, so watch out for that. No, 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 no. That's not what it's talking about. We'll come to that in just a moment. Uh, Paul carries on in verse 5. Some judge one day to be better than another, while others judge all days to be alike. There's a disagreement here about how to tackle these particular issues, what, what to eat, what days to observe as holy. Uh, who are the weak and the strong that Paul's talking about here? He doesn't actually refer to anyone as uh, the strong here in this passage. Uh, he calls them uh, that later in chapter 15, and so it makes sense to kind of read it back into this passage. It helps us unpack that together a little bit, the weak and the strong. You've got to remember in the background of all of this that uh, all the way through Romans, Paul's been addressing the issue of how it is that salvation comes to everyone by grace, through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Not through the possession of the Old Testament law, the Torah that was given to God's people, Israel, the Jews in the Old Testament. Uh, Paul, at various points, uh, points out that actually the Torah is a good gift from God. It's a good thing. But it can't save anyone on its own. Instead, what it does is to point the way toward the the grace-filled life together in love that God alone makes possible through faith, which is what Paul means by by love fulfilling the law in that passage that we unpacked together last week. Even though Paul doesn't talk about the Torah directly here in chapter 14, uh, concerns about food and holy days are significant concerns in the Old Testament law, uh, where it describes which foods are clean and unclean, which days are holy, especially the weekly Sabbath. Those concerns are so central to Jewish identity throughout the scriptures and all the more so when living in a deeply pagan environment like Rome that it's easy to imagine Jews who've become Christians finding it really, really hard to let go of those things that have been so central to their lives for so long. And so they choose only to eat vegetables. Why? You might know if you've read all of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy and read all of the law in detail... Uh, that actually there's nothing about eating only vegetables in the Old Testament, so what's going on here? Uh, It seems to be that actually they're avoiding uh, certain kinds of meats and certain uh, preparations of meat. So in the Old Testament law, you're supposed to only eat meat that's prepared in a certain way, kosher food. Jews in a pagan city like Rome would probably avoid meat completely to make sure they weren't accidentally eating meat that wasn't kosher because they didn't have any Jewish butchers to go to. 
Just think of uh, Daniel and his mates. They go vego in Babylon, you might remember. In addition, lots of the meat available in Rome would have been offered to idols in pagan temple worship before it was sold in the marketplace. Uh, and that's an association with, with idol worship that both Jewish Christians and Christians who'd, become, who'd come out of a pagan background would have been keen to, to not have anything to do with that. Uh, later on in, in next week's passage, um, sorry, Ben, Ben Tillemans is preaching next week. I'm going to steal a verse out of your passage. Sorry, Ben. Uh, in verse 21, we find out also that the, the weak are avoiding drinking wine as well. Again, that's something that's not forbidden in the Old Testament law, uh, but it's probably a way to try and distinguish themselves from the drunkenness, actually, that was often uh, a mark of pagan temple worship. That's what's going on here with the avoiding meat uh, and, uh, um, and keeping particular days holy. The question that divides the weak and the strong, you see, is this. Where do you stand on obeying the Torah, the Old Testament law? The weak answer that the disciples of Jesus should continue to follow that law and the strong answer that since they're justified by grace through faith, that they no longer need to follow that law. And so what we have here in the end, as one commentator describes them, is on the one hand, teetotaling Sabbatarian vegan Jews and on the other hand, wine-sipping, Saturday-shopping, bacon-munching Gentiles. Those are the two groups on view here. Uh, Notice that the weak are called the weak in faith. Isn't that interesting? Uh, It doesn't sound like a nice thing to say to someone, does it? Especially in the context of the word of God being spoken to you. Uh, I think it's important for us to to understand that 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 doesn't mean actually that they're bad Christians. That's not what's being said here. That they don't really actually trust Jesus properly. What it means is that they haven't yet fully uh, realised and worked out the implications of the freedom that comes through the gospel in their lives. Uh, Now, Paul's quite clear that he thinks uh, the strong are theologically uh, theologically correct. Uh, Again, still in a verse from from Ben's passage next week. In verse 14, he writes, I know and I'm persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. The strong are right that the gospel means that they're now free to eat all the bacon they want. But that doesn't mean the weak are less saved or somehow less Christian. It simply means they aren't taking full advantage of their freedom in Christ. Uh, One commentator writes that it's a little bit like the strong are those who are like, the speed limit says 100, so I'm going to drive 100. I'm not breaking the law, but I'm going to exercise full freedom that's been given to me. The weak might be the ones who go, I'm a little bit nervous about getting into a bit of a tangle somewhere, so I'm going to sit on 80 or 85. That's kind of the difference, if you like. Notice, though, that even though Paul thinks the strong are right theologically, that he doesn't kind of just launch into trying to correct the weak, does he? Instead, what he says in verse 5 is this, let all be fully convinced in their own minds. In other words, what Paul's saying is this, sure, I think that the strong are theologically correct, but on this issue, it doesn't really matter, actually. On this where-do-you-stand question, it's just all right to come to different conclusions, even if I, as the apostle, think that one of them is a better answer than the other. You can express your devotion to Jesus if you choose to, through obedience to Torah. If that's what you think is right in your conscience, go for it. And equally, you can express your devotion to Jesus in freedom from that law. That's what's going on in Rome, as Paul writes this letter. What we need to see is that if that's true for the Romans then, then that means that there are issues of Christian discipleship for us here and now too that are not black and white, you see, but grey. Simon McCourt pointed out this morning that actually I'm wearing the right colour for this today, you know, here, and so just keep thinking of this. This is the colour that a lot of Christian discipleship is. 
it's okay to disagree about a whole bunch of things. Uh, Christians have often referred to these issues as adiaphora, a fancy word that means disputable matters. Yes, in Christian faith and life, there are big, central, non-negotiable, cut-and-dried, black-and-white issues. And there are a whole bunch of small, maybe at most medium-sized issues about which we can actually just agree or disagree. Now, that raises the obvious question, how do you know? How do you know which issues are which? Uh, The basic answer, of course, is this. The things that the Bible is clear about, this is sin, are non-negotiable. And the things that the Bible is either silent about or actually has different things to say about in different contexts are disputable. Uh, The Anglican Church has a statement of faith known as the 39 Articles of Religion, and uh, Article 6 puts it like this. It'll be up on the screen for you. Written in the uh, 16th century, so cope with the ye olde language. Holy Scripture containeth all things necessary to salvation, so that whatsoever is not read therein, nor may be proved thereby, is not to be required of any man that it should be believed as an article of the faith, or be thought requisite or necessary to salvation. A really good little summary, actually. What it's saying, in other words, is that we should never promote what the Bible names as sin. Of course we shouldn't do that. But at the same time, we should never forbid what the Bible doesn't condemn as sin. Now, Paul indicates that this issue of following Torah as a Christian is a disputable matter like this. The Bible neither forbids you to follow the Old Testament law if you choose to, but nor does it require it. And therefore, Christians have freedom to decide what they think about it. Now, remember that the disagreement in Rome isn't just about abstract theology, is it? This is about actually their relationships to one another, particularly as they come to sit down to eat together. And some people are going, I won't touch that meat. And other people are going, give me all the meat. And it's causing a kind of an actual issue in their lives together as Christian believers. It's connected to theology, of course, but it's about how a gospel-driven theology is actually lived out in practice. In other words, it's a discipleship issue. And so it's worth asking in our own time and place, what are some discipleship issues that might fit in each of those two categories? Non-negotiable on one hand, indisputable, clear in the scriptures, and on the other hand, disputable, happy to be disagreed about. I'm going to throw some of them at you just to give you an idea of what some of those things might be and feel free to accost me after the service if you think I've got things in the wrong categories. That'd be fun because it turns out you can even sometimes disagree about whether things are disputable or not. That's fun to talk about. Here are some big things, though, right? Some discipleship issues which are given a clear shape in the Scriptures. Uh, Firstly, lying. Don't do it. The Bible's very clear about that. If you're someone who habitually lies, stop it. You're actually just compromising your gospel living at that point. Relatedly, gossip. Don't do it. Uh, also, the scriptures make very clear that as part of your Christian discipleship, you've got to provide for your immediate family as best as you can. Paul says if you fail to do that, you're worse than an unbeliever. Uh, thirdly, you should be caring for and contributing to the needs of the poor. Uh, here's a big hot button one in our culture, but one, again, that the scriptures are clear on the orthodox Christian view of sexuality that sex is for a male female marriage, and people living outside of that arrangement are called to celibacy. Some other, even kind of more mundane ones, if you like, but really important ones, regular meeting with other Christians for prayer, for reading the scriptures and fellowship, regular personal prayer and Bible reading. These are all things that the scriptures say are central aspects of living a genuinely flourishing Christian life. If you're not doing those things, then something's going wrong with your discipleship to Jesus. Big things. 
indisputable things. Uh, but what about some of the small things, discipleship issues for which there's just a, a reasonable case that can be made either way from Scripture, and where there's therefore room to disagree? Uh, some of the classic ones in church life are women preaching. I've mentioned it already. Uh, infant baptism versus adult baptism. Uh, here's one that actually, believe it or not, has broken churches apart countless times throughout Christian history. What kinds of songs we should sing in church? Disputable. Just agree to disagree about that. It's fine. Uh, whether or not Christians should consume alcohol, what leadership structure a church should have, how much money I should give to Christian mission and ministry versus how much I spend on myself, which political party should you vote for in a couple of weeks' time. All of these things are just things that actually there's different cases you can make from the scriptures about it. Christians can come to different conclusions about them, and that's just okay. Paul says, let all be fully convinced in their own minds. So the first thing we learn here is that there isn't a black and white answer to every issue of Christian discipleship. There's lots of grey areas where you actually just need to go and make up your own mind about what you think is most honouring to the Lord Jesus in that. But that doesn't mean, right, that you can just kind of go, ah, you know what, if it doesn't really matter, I'm just going to do what feels best to me and not think about it any, anymore and just kind of just do what I like. There's a framework we need to apply to actually think these things through in our own lives, in our own Christian living. On the one hand, we need to learn to live in the grave. We're going to live lives of love together. But we also are called to live to the Lord. Point two. What does it look like to live to the Lord? Uh, the reason that it's all right to disagree on all these kind of disputable matters is that there's a deeper matter of far greater importance. Verse six. Uh, those who observe the day, observe it in honour of the Lord. Also those who eat, eat in honour of the Lord, since they give thanks to God. Or those who abstain, abstain in honour of the Lord and give thanks to God. Uh, you see what Paul's saying here? Uh, whatever decision someone comes to about the right way to live out their faith in Jesus in regards to these things, what matters is that they're seeking to honour the Lord. Uh, you know that phrase, it's the thought that counts? Sometimes it's true, sometimes it's not. But it's a little bit similar to what Paul's saying here, actually. What he's saying here is, it's the heart that counts. Are you seeking in what you do and how you live to honour the Lord? On disputable matters, any stance can be the right one if it's held and lived out with the intention of seeking to honour the Lord Jesus. So, Paul continues in verse 7. We don't live to ourselves and we don't die to ourselves. If we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. The only stand, you see, he's saying, that matters in the end is your standing for the Lord. Now, what he's saying here is that, you know, everything you do between life and death, the whole of your existence, it's supposed to be lived to the Lord. And living to the Lord is contrasted here with living to ourselves, uh, living to ourselves, of course, means ordering and organising our lives in relation to our own desires, our own wishes, our own preferences, even our own backgrounds in different ways, that those are the things that define how we live our life. Uh, those things, of course, a lot of the time aren't actually wrong in and of themselves, but the thing that Paul's telling us here is they all need to be judged in relation to our honouring of the Lord Jesus. So, for example, when you consider who to vote for in a couple of weeks' time or when you are thinking through whether or not you should be watching that particular TV show with that violence and graphic nudity in it, what would it look like for you to honour the Lord, to live to the Lord in that moment? When you think about how you spend your money, 
What would it look like to do that to the Lord for his honour? One way of thinking about this is to just kind of, you know, it's kind of a bit of a youth group kind of thing, but actually it's kind of really useful sometimes. To just actually imagine that Jesus is standing there with you. Think to myself, what, what would I do in that circumstance? Would I watch this? Would I do that with my money? Would I cast that ballot? There's plenty of disputable matters on which it's fine for us to disagree as Christians, but that doesn't mean that how you approach them doesn't matter. So you still need to bring your, kind of your Christian convictions, the shape of the gospel, all those things to bear on them. Everything needs to be considered in relation to the Lord and what honours him. In the end, the only stance that matters is where you stand, you see, in relation to Jesus, how you position yourself toward him. Uh, that's actually, uh, in part, what the transformation that Paul spoke about all the way back at the start of chapter 12 is all about. Uh, remember that famous verse uh, we looked at last year from Romans 12, don't be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Uh, Christianity isn't about keeping the rules, you see, it's about transformation, as the grace of God transforms your heart, it's your job and your joy to work out what God's will looks like for you in your own particular life circumstances and in our own particular time and place. We're called to obedience, yes, but to a responsive, free, creative obedience from the heart, what Paul way back in chapter 1 calls the obedience of faith, which means getting to chapter 12 that we're to give ourselves as living sacrifices to God in chapter 13, with love as the shape and pattern of every one of our relationships. And that means that maturity in Christian discipleship doesn't, isn't just about kind of ticking the right behavioural boxes. I did or didn't do that thing. I have or don't have that particular opinion. Rather, it's all about learning to have a gospel-shaped attitude to every issue that you face. It's your job, you see, Romans 12, to discern what is the will of God for your own walk with Christ, including becoming fully convinced in your own mind about disputable matters of discipleship, always within the boundaries of those big things that the scriptures are actually clear about, those stakes in the ground. To live together in love as God's people means being able to live in the grey, and yet as you live in the grey, to seek to do everything you can to live to the Lord in all of those things. By the point that actually Paul really wants to, to make uh, most clearly and to underscore for us in this passage is this. If these matters really are disputable and if different stances on these issues really can be legitimately held by people who are equally Christian people trying to honour the Lord, then they must not ever become grounds for a breakdown of fellowship. They must not stop you from living a life of love towards one another. And so we get to point three, final point tonight, that to live together in love as God's people means learning to live with difference. Uh, the root problem in the church in Rome is that, actually, in, in the end, both the weak and the strong have allowed this small issue to become a big thing. And that has massive effects on their relationships to one another. Listen to how Paul describes how they're relating to each other in verse 3. Those who eat must not despise those who abstain. And those who abstain must not pass judgment on those who eat, for God has welcomed them. Who are you to pass judgment on servants of another? It's before their own law that they'll stand or fall. Now, there are two ways that Paul highlights here that this kind of relational breakdown, when you get the small things out of proportion and think of them as big things, how does that relational breakdown actually play out? On the one hand, there's passing judgment. On the other hand, there's despising. And they're similar related things, but kind of with a bit of a different texture to them. Now, passing judgment is that attitude that the weak have toward the strong, 
the weak who abstain from meat, who eat only vegetables, who continue to observe the holy days. Uh, passing judgment is basically, uh, they're, what they're doing is accusing uh, the, the strong of sin. If you were really a serious Christian, you wouldn't eat that. Uh, despising, on the other hand, is the attitude that the strong have toward the weak. Uh, the strong know that they're free from the requirements to abstain from certain foods and observe certain days. And what's more, Paul says they're right about that. And yet, in their kind of confidence in themselves, they despise the weak by looking down on them as just unworthy of their respect, really, in the end. Oh, man, if you can't understand that you're allowed to, to eat meat, then you're just like, really, I can't even bother hanging out with you. Just, just what's the point? It's possible, actually, that the term that Paul uses here, the weak in faith, actually is taken from what the strong have been saying against other people in their community, that the weak in faith might be the kind of condescending label that the strong are using. Oh, yeah, the weak in faith over there. They use it to dismiss and to belittle the more conservative believers in their fellowship. Passing judgment and despising. I want us to just to take a moment to think about uh, what that might look like in relation to where you yourself stand on some of those disputable matters that I listed for you earlier. Are you tempted to judge or to despise those who disagree with you about these things? Does it affect how you relate to them? Can you imagine yourself saying, I can't believe she thinks it's all right to watch that violent and sexually explicit TV show. Does she even care about holiness? Or how could he possibly vote for that party and call himself a Christian? Or, you know, he told me that he's off Instagram because it presents too many temptations, but really shouldn't just kind of grow up and get over that? Whatever position we take on these things, of course, we're actually always going to think that we're the strong ones, aren't we? That's usually how it works. We're going to think, I oh, know I'm the strong one and they're the weak one. And that means that part of what we've got to realise here is that the point of this kind of passage is not to start going, all right, who are the weak in our congregation? Let's just, like, label everyone. Who's strong? Who's weak? That's not the point, right? We're always going to think that we're right. The thing is that the gospel of grace means that living in love is more important than being right. Or to put it another way, what this passage teaches us is that getting your Christian discipleship wrong isn't actually as bad as getting it right but being a jerk about it. Uh, writer Dallas, uh, Dallas Willard reflects on this. Uh, there's a quote that will be up on the screen for you. He says, Being right is one of the hardest burdens human beings have to bear and few succeed in bearing up under it gracefully. He writes, there's a little placard that I've seen that reads, Lord, when we're wrong, make us willing to change. And when we're right, make us easy to live with. Have you ever met someone who knows they're right about something and they get really annoying about it? Have you been that person, perhaps, from time to time? In the community of love formed by the gospel, there should be no judging and no despising. I mean, can you imagine the kind of gospel humility needed to be willing to acknowledge that you're wrong and to change? Can you imagine the kind of gospel poise that's needed to be right and not be a jerk about it? If we get that right, then instead of judging and despising, I think we're going to be characterised by, by two different things, actually, different kind of characteristics. On the one hand, humility, and on the other hand, curiosity. And that's something, actually, to be humble and to be curious. That's not a thing that you can do at arm's length, not a thing you can do at a distance. You have to do that in relationship with other people. What do I mean by all this? Uh, let me say uh, this. That I'm, I'm actually aware that there are sisters and brothers in our church uh, who do hold uh, minority opinions on various theological, social, um, political, personal issues. Uh, usually, since we're in the inner west, the minority view is usually the, the kind of more conservative one, isn't it? 
And I've had some people who hold minority views like that tell me, I'm, I'm not making this up, this is true, I've had some of those people tell me that they're a little bit afraid to actually say what they really think about some of these things because they're worried about the response that they'll get. They're worried that they'll be despised, actually. And so they just stay quiet about these things. Now, on the surface, that makes us look like everything is going great. We're not arguing about these disputable matters, are we? And yet, that can be just the appearance of living together in love without its actual substance, can't it? Uh, on the other hand, uh, I know that sometimes uh, our genuine disagreements do actually get raised, and yet sometimes they get raised only amongst the people who happen to have the same opinion about them as they talk about, discuss, gossip, about those people who have a different view, instead of actually just having a conversation together about it. Again, the appearance of living together in love without its substance. We're called to so much more than that, aren't we? If we really do get that living together in love means learning to live in the grey, then we'll also want to help one another to live to the Lord, even when that looks different for someone else to how it looks to me. And so when we discover a difference with someone in Christian community, instead of allowing a gap to grow relationally between us around that thing, let's actually have a conversation about it. Get curious about it. Say, how have you come to that conclusion? That's just different to my conclusion. How have you come to that conclusion? What does it look like for you to live to the Lord in this? We might even actually learn something from one another. Perhaps we might even learn that we're wrong about something and need to have the humility to change. And see, underpinning both of those things is the, the basic assumption that we should have toward one another as sisters and brothers, that even if we differ with one another, we're all actually just trying to faithfully honour the Lord who has given himself for us. That that's what we're trying to do. We're all trying to live to the Lord. We're all trying to honour him in what we do. And sometimes it looks different for different people. If we can have that kind of humility and that kind of curiosity about one another, then we're going to be a community in which conservatives and progressives, meat lovers and vegans, teetotalers and craft beer enthusiasts, hands raised worshippers and arms folded worshippers, lovers of spontaneity and sticklers for the liturgy, public school educated, private school educated, blue-collar, white-collar, well-dressed, daggy, homeowners, renters, all of us will see each of these differences as just a small little thing, just a little difference in the way that each of us is trying to live to the Lord. A small thing that each of us are seeking to offer as part of our living sacrifice to the Lord who we all serve. Now, of course, that's easier said than done, isn't it? in part because we live in a culture that makes it so hard not to turn where do you stand on this questions into ultimate questions about who's in and who's worthy of our attention and our respect. We find it hard, I think, because actually it's very easy to turn those where do we stand questions into marks of our own worthiness, don't we? A question about our own standing before others and before the Lord. If I take the right stances, if I actually live, the, the, if I live out these particular things, if I get that right, then I'm Okay. But when the Lordship of Jesus Christ relativizes all of our stances about all of those other disputable things, it also relativizes our standing as well. Uh, read with me from verse 10. Paul writes, Why do you pass a judgment on your brother or sister? Or you, why do you despise your brother or sister? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. You see, we're all going to be on level playing field at that moment, aren't we? As we stand before the judgment seat of God. And in the end, the only stance that matters is where you stand before the Lord who will judge. 
And none of us can stand before him on the basis of our own stances on any particular issue at all. No one can stand before him on the perfection of our discipleship or how right we are about any number of matters. No, if we're going to stand before the judgment seat of God, then we need someone who can make us stand because we can't do it. And thanks be to God, that's what we have in Jesus, isn't it? Read verse 4 with me. It's, it's right at the heart of this passage, I think, really. This is kind of really actually what Paul wants us to learn here in this, in this verse. Who are you to pass judgment on servants of another? It's before their own Lord that they stand or fall. And they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. You see, if you call on the name of the Lord Jesus, then you will stand because he stood in our place. Despised and rejected at the cross, he bore the judgment that should be ours, yours and mine, for all of our failures of love, for all of our inability to reckon with the big things and our temptation to make small things much bigger than they should be. Where do you stand? Well, because he stood for you, you now stand in him and you will stand. And despite all of our differences and the difficulties that they can cause, we stand in him together. How dare you judge somebody else? The Lord's already made them stand. And the more we see one another standing in him, the better we'll be able to show the world what it looks like to really actually live together in love. And that can make all the difference. Would you pray with me that God will help us actually to see one another like that and so live this life of love together? Our gracious and loving Heavenly Father, your grace to us is so remarkable that actually, despite the fact we get things wrong, despite the fact we get things wrong theologically, we get things wrong in our discipleship, even though we continue to uh, fall into old patterns of sin as we go forward in the Christian life, as we seek to wrestle out uh, what it looks like to live to the Lord and yet get it wrong so often, your grace is never ending to us because Jesus has stood in our place. And so, Father, we ask that you would drive deep into our hearts the reality that because we stand in him, we will stand on that last day. And to see everyone else in our Christian community with the same eyes, as people who belong to the same Lord, who are answerable to him, as people whom you have promised you will make stand alongside us. And so, Father, help us to love one another, to be able to be humble before one another, to be curious about one another, to know what it is actually to learn from one another, even across our differences. And so more and more to learn more and more deeply in the very centre of our being what really matters most, that we love the Lord Jesus with all our heart and soul and mind and strength, that we seek to honour him in everything. Help us to be a community, Father, of people who seek that for ourselves and seek that for each other as well. And as we do that, make us a light to the world around us, so lost in darkness, so that they might see that it's possible to live out love together. We ask this for your glory, by the power of your spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. Learn to live together in love means learning.